Thank you very much. Uh, I would like to begin with prayer, if we could do that as we open God's Word together. Father, we come to you and we are mindful that our life has been given to us by you as a gift. That you not only have created us and sustained us and every day is a gift, we know that. Every day we see your mercy and that you sustain our lives. But we also are mindful that we have been rescued, that you pursued us, that you sent the Son for us, that Jesus, you, you gave your life that we might have life, that we might know the love of the Father, that we might be forgiven and accepted and brought into an eternal family. And so it's with that in mind that we ask, because you know us, you see us, you know every thought, you know every careless word, you know our lives and what we do. We ask that you would bring to our hearts and our minds the very thing you want to say to us. We invite you by your Spirit to both encourage us but also convict us of any unbelief in regards to all that is true for us in Christ. And we pray that you would move in our hearts in such a way that as we leave this time together, we would continue to be a transformed people and that we would live lives for your glory. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, it is good to be with you, and I come with the blessing of my uh, leadership at Doxa Church. A part of my time in my job description is dedicated to what we are calling Saturate the Sound. We, we believe that we are better together, that the church is not meant to be one local body isolated from all the other local bodies, but Jesus prayed in John 17 that we would be one as he is with the Father, so may we be in him and us together, we would be a picture of the oneness of God and, and, and the Son, God the Father, God the Son. In fact, Jesus prays it this way, he says, I pray that as I am in you and you are in me, Father, may they be in us and may they be one so that the world will know that you sent me. And I want, to, I want to say, like, one of the things that is damaging the reputation of Jesus himself is our division. And so we want to pray for unity. It's already true in the heavenly realms, but we don't live like we believe it. And so that's one of our, our heart's passion. Uh, some of you know that uh, I stepped into what was Mars Hill Bellevue about four and a half years ago. I had planted a church in 2003, 2004 with my wife and our, our firstborn. Now we have three kids. Uh, and that church was called Soma, that was in Tacoma, and I just like words that rhyme, so uh, actually the word Soma is the Greek word for body, and it's looking at fulfilling uh, Paul's picture of the church in Ephesians 1, 22, 23, where Christ is the head of his church, which is his Soma, his body, in which he fills all in all. And that was our vision back in Tacoma, and God gave us the, the joy and grace to see a family of churches birth throughout uh, North America. Now, that's called the Soma family. Uh, but then I was called when the things kind of fell apart about five years ago uh, at, with Marceau. They asked if I would step in and restart a church out of the remain, remaining people there in Bellevue. It was just about 500 or so left. And we started a new church there, which is called Doxa. And uh, one of the things that uh, I love, that's the word for glory, by the way, uh, 
and we can talk about that later. But um, one thing I, I love about the church that God has given me to shepherd in Bellevue is that in light of their past, they, they wanted to walk out the fruit of repentance in humility in particular, as well as in a sense of uh, that we need one another. Instead of being its own church, which oftentimes it felt like to them, they want to reach out and be one church with the larger body. And so one of our visions is that we would see the church working together for gospel saturation of the Puget Sound. Like, like Kevin said, we want to see a day when every man, woman, and child gets to have a daily encounter with Jesus in word and deed through his people, the church, wherever we live, work, learn, and play. And it's our hope that the over one million people who don't know Jesus in this region would get an opportunity on a daily basis to, to basically be introduced to Jesus, not just through our good lives, but also through the good words that we proclaim. So that's one of the reasons why I'm here, because I am, am encouraging Kevin and others, and they are encouraging me as we spur one another on towards this vision. And so I feel in a sense that you are my family. I hope that you believe that. You're my brothers and sisters if you know Jesus and have been transformed by his grace. So I want to start with a text in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. We're going to start there to kind of set up where I'm going to take us this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to that or you can look on the screens. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. Peter is writing to the church in uh, modern, or in what we know as modern-day Turkey. It's, then it was called Asia Minor. And so the people of God have been scattered throughout the region, and he wants to write to them to encourage them in light of who God is, what God has done, leading to who they are, wanting to make sure their identity and sense of purpose is not connected to their circumstance, but to the, the never-changing reality of God and all that he's done in Christ. So he says this, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, referring to Jesus, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the idea here is Peter wants to make sure they understand that even though they're scattered all over the place and they don't get to be with Christians in a larger group as often as maybe some got to in that particular time and place, many of them are going through persecution and discouragement, beginning to even question the very realities of God and who they were as a result of what he did in Christ. He wants to remind them that your circumstance doesn't change the reality of all that God is and all that he's done in Jesus, and that your geography doesn't make you a church. That just because you're not together, it doesn't mean you're not a church. So I want to say that to you, family, that, that you don't go to church. This building isn't a church. You are the church. The church is the people of God. I have to remind my kids of this all the time. I feel like I've been doing this for almost 17 years uh, with my oldest, who is going into her senior year. It's like they, regularly they say, are we, where are we going to church this week if we're traveling? I go, well, we don't go to church. We are the church. I know, Dad, but where are we going to go? You know, and I'm like, okay, you're not listening well, okay? You can say, well, are we, where are we going to gather with the church? Which part of the church will we gather with? And, and we oftentimes show that we don't really believe we are the church outside of Sunday by using language like that. And I would wonder, do you feel like you are the church every single day? What I'd like you to do is if you're born in the first six months of the year, I want you to stand. Don't worry, I'm not going to have you do anything other than stand. So some of you are like, okay, I don't, I don't want to do this. Okay. Uh, Peter says, 
As we come to him, Jesus, the chosen cornerstone, we also are like living stones being built up into a spiritual household. So you are the, the, the chosen stones. Sorry for all those who are seated. Uh, too bad for you, I guess. But not, maybe not. Because here's the deal. Let's imagine that this room represents the greater Puget Sound. Minimally, Kent, but I know not all of you are living in Kent. You're living in different areas, driving in on Sunday to this building. And you work at different places. So you live in different places, work in different places. You, some of you go to school in different places. You Kids play sports in different places. So I want you to imagine your life in all those places and, and to really embrace the fact that you are the living stones of God making up his spiritual household that is moving around the region. And as it were, the Spirit is drawing lines between all of you. And let's just expand it. Imagine every Christian in all the Puget Sound is represented by you. And so all week long, there's this spiritual house in movement throughout the Puget Sound, and therefore everybody that's seated around you is absolutely surrounded by the presence of God every single day with the opportunity to meet Jesus. Do you believe that? That's who you are. Let's thank those who stood. I want you to keep that picture in your mind, not just today. You can sit down, you guys. Uh, I want you to keep that picture in your mind, not just today, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, back to Sunday. And in a sense, this space, this time, is meant to remind you of who God is, what He's done, and who you are as the church in the everyday. And the beauty of, and I don't know if you realize this, most of the well over a million people in the Puget Sound who presently are not connected to a church and don't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and lives have not been transformed by Him yet, most of them will not be coming to this building or any other building in the Puget Sound that has a label church on it. Okay, and I'm not saying that to discourage you. I'm just saying that's the reality of our region. And, but here's the good news. The church is going to those places every day where those people are. So it's not like they, they aren't coming to church and they're going to miss out on it. They're going to work and the church is at work. They're going home, and the church is in their neighborhood. They're going to the, the soccer field, and the church is sitting in the stands. They're, they're going to school, and the church is at the school. And if we don't embrace that, we'll never reach this community. But if we believe that, then everybody out there is going to meet Jesus. Whether they respond to him or not is not up to us. But God wants every one of us to believe that's true so that all the million-plus people will get an opportunity every day to meet Jesus. Amen? That's who you are, church. That's what Jesus set you apart for. We aren't here just waiting for him to return. We're actively doing his work as we wait for Jesus to come back. The rest of Peter's letter describes who we are as God's people and how we would live if we believed it. And we're going to mainly look at chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. But before we do that, I want to jump over to chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, because Peter knows that if we live out our identity as God's people in the world, we're going to have plenty of opportunities to share why we do what we do. He says it this way, verse 13, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. He wants to prepare them in their context. If they walk in the way of Jesus, if they believe their new identity, if they express that in everyday life, they will, won't always be accepted. 
It won't always go well. It won't always be easy. But he does say, don't be afraid of them, nor be troubled. And he continues, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Which means always have Jesus set apart in your heart as your Lord, ready for you to be able to say, this is why I live my life. I, live, I do everything for him. Everything. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Unfortunately, many of us have read that passage and we're like, that means we have to be ready to debate people. Like we have to be ready to answer the tough questions and prove them wrong. And that's not what's going on here, because if you would have read the chapters beforehand, you would realize what Peter is talking about is that you'll be living, or the people in that day would be living in such a way that their lives would demand an explanation, because the way they live looks so radically different than the rest of the world. The the way that I say it is, is this, we should be living our lives in such a way that it demands a gospel explanation. See, Some of you might go, I hardly ever have any opportunities to talk about Jesus. And the first question I would ask is, does your life look any different than everybody else? Because if your life looks like everybody else, then there's nothing they need to ask you about. They don't have to ask you to explain, why do you love like you do and forgive like like you do? And why do you open up your home like you do and share your resources like you do? And why, even though people take advantage of you, do you keep loving them and sharing your resources over and over again? And you'd, you'd finally get to go, I'll tell you why. I've got a reason for the hope that's in me. I've got a reason for the life that I live. But if all of our lives look exactly like everybody else, they're not looking at our lives going like, tell me why you do what you do, because they're going, I do the same thing you do. Years ago, I was speaking in Texas, and, and uh, a woman came up to me after the preaching, and it was this text, actually, I was preaching from, and, and she was really encouraged by the stories and the, the, the call of God uh, for, to be his people in, in the places he's placed us. And she said, you know, in, in our neighborhood, we had a really hard situation happen. One of the men, uh, one of the husbands had an affair with another wife in the neighborhood. And not only did it destroy his family, but it destroyed the other family. And he's still there in the house. And everyone, it's kind of a cul-de-sac, so everybody knows what's going on. And, and it's just gossip and slander is happening all the time. And she said, we just, we invite him over for dinner and we invite him into our home and we're trying to love on him and care for him. And, and of course, all the neighbors are like thinking we're crazy. Why would we ever do this? In fact, she goes on, she said, I had this one lady come up to me just the other day and say, you know, I don't, we don't get it. Why in the world would you do this for this guy? He's a jerk. What he did destroyed our community, not just his family. Our whole community is a mess because of what he did. And I, you know, I'm waiting, I'm like, okay, she heard me preach and how we, we live a life that demands a gospel explanation, and then when we get the opportunity, we tell them about Jesus, we don't tell them about ourselves, and she goes, I said, what, do you t- what did you tell her? She said, well, I just told her, it's not hard to be nice. And I was just like, and? She's like, that was it, just not hard to be nice, uh, and I and I had just been preaching about the gospel grace of God and how he doesn't treat us according to our sins that deserve and how we don't pour guilt and shame on people when they, when they are walking in brokenness. And so the Lord's going like, now don't do what you told everybody else not to do. Like, don't shame her. Don't guilt her right now. You know, she needs the kindness of God as you respond. And so I'm like, okay, Lord, um, um, maybe can I offer an opportunity for you in the future or maybe a way to respond to that opportunity if they ask you again? how would you give an answer that really magnifies Jesus? And she's like, hmm. So like, for instance, maybe if you were to say something like, sometimes it's really hard to be nice. In fact, I, I'm pretty upset too. But you know what? God doesn't treat me 
in the way that my sins deserve. I rebelled against the creator of the universe who designed me in his image to display what he's like, and I have fallen short of that every day of my life. And yet he still invites me into his home. And he loves me because of Jesus. And the fact that Jesus died for my sins and given me forgiveness, I'm welcome in the home of God. And so we just want to do what God's done to us, to others. And she's like, that's good. <laughs> now, here, here's the thing. I'm not trying to boast to myself. I'm just going to say, anytime that you make Jesus the hero of your actions, it sounds like good news. And I would offer the other side because he's really clear. Let's make sure we do this with gentleness and respect. In another place, Paul says, and Peter both use different kinds of language, but they use this language of, of seasoned with salt or in a way that benefits the listener. And, and sometimes I wonder, like a lot of people are like, yeah, I preached the gospel. Man, did I give it to them. And they all rejected it and left. And I always go like, if it doesn't sound like good news, it might not have been. Right, because the good news should sound like good news. And I'm not saying compromise the truth of the gospel. I'm just saying share it in such a way that the person who needs it actually wants it. Right? And when I share, it's hard to love people and it's hard to forgive people and it's hard to keep letting people into my life who hurt me and I tell them the only reason I can do it is because that's what God has done with me. That's not only true, but it's good news for people who are trying to figure out how to make it in this world in relationships that are really hard. And the gospel gives me something that nothing else can. See, here's the problem. If, if, if we live really good lives and we never give Jesus credit, we actually rob Jesus of the credit. Donald Whitney tells a story in his book on spiritual disciplines in his chapter on evangelism about a guy in the Northwest who had gone away to a, an evangelistic crusade in the, in the weekend and and he had come to faith, and he'd come back to work, and he was sharing with everybody you know, what God had done in his life. And of course, he, he had a boss who was a Christian who had been praying for him for many, many years. And, and the, the boss is like, I can't believe it. I'm so excited you came to faith. And this guy looks at his boss, and he says, what? You're a Christian? <laughs> He's like, yeah. He goes, you're almost the reason I didn't become a Christian. And he wanted to explain. Because some of you are thinking, yeah, he lived such a bad life, nobody wanted to be like him. That wasn't the case. He said, you're a great boss. You care for your employees. You love people super well. I figured if you didn't need Jesus to be a good man, then I didn't need Jesus to be a good man. And I want to say this. Your good works can lead people away from Jesus because they think that you don't need Jesus to live the life you live if you don't give Jesus the credit for the life you're living. Anytime. You live a life that demands a gospel explanation and you give yourself as the answer. You are, in effect, robbing Jesus of what he is due. Because he's changed our hearts. He's changed our lives. He should get the credit for the life we live. Amen? And so I want to encourage you as we talk about what it looks like to live a life that demands a gospel explanation, that you're ready to declare the reason for the hope that is in you. Let's go back to chapter 2, verse 9. You, listen to this family, this is who you are in Christ. You are a chosen race. Your Bible might say a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. That's the people who don't yet believe. That's Peter's language for that. 
honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, meaning they don't understand why you live the life you do and it looks wrong to them, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter's describing our new identity in three key statements that we're going to walk through, and he knows that if we get our identity right, our behaviors flow out of our identity. We always do who we believe we are. That's how it works. Now, let me ask, in light of this text, in light of what you know, how many of you are worship leaders in the room? I'm going to read it again. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passion of flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. How many of you are worship leaders in the room? Okay, we're going to try it one more time. I'll read it a different way. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful, marvelous light. How many are worship leaders in the room? We're getting better. Okay, so the point is, what is a worship leader? It's not a song leader. I remember years ago, a, new, a brand new Christian that I was a friend of mine, he came to Christ. He said, man, the worship was amazing this morning. I said, really? Would, I, I referenced Aaron. What, what did you love about how Aaron led us? He goes, no, no, I'm not talking about Aaron. I'm talking about you. And I, I was up preaching. And he's like, he's like, that was great worship. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, you led us to worship God. I'm like, yeah, you're right. That is worship leading. See, worship leader, leading is not getting people to sing songs. It's getting them to worship God through our words, through our actions, through our lives. All of you have the opportunity every single day where you live, work, learn, and play to be a worship leader, to lead people through your good lives and your lips to worship God. And if we all believe that, it would change the way we do everything, wouldn't it? So let's consider our identity statements because these are the ways we lead people to worship God. You are a chosen race. If you're aware of the biblical narrative the story of God throughout the Bible is this phrase would take you all the way back to a man named Abram. Some of you know the story of Abram. Abram is visited by God. And in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord God calls Abram to trust him. He says, I'm going to send you to a place I'll show you. I'll make of you a large nation. Of course, if you know the backstory, you know that Abram and his wife Sarai, as her name was at that point, could not have children and they're very, very old. Okay? And so he, there, there's like, yeah, right, God, you're going to have to pull this off. And he changed his name to Abraham, which means father of many nations. Now, when does he change his name? Before they have their son, Isaac, or after? Before. Very important. If you're, if you're not yet a Christian in the room, this is really important for you to understand about Christianity. Because many of the religions of the world say, come and do something for your God, and then your God will accept you. And in Christianity, it's God says, I will come and do something for you to change you and make you acceptable, and then I will work through you in light of what I do. So Abram gets the name Abraham, father of many nations, before he becomes a father, which is just a microcosm of what happens in, in, in our faith, in that God says, you're a sinner, but now in Christ you're a saint. You are far from me, but now you're near. You're an enemy of God, but now you're a child of God. And he calls us that before we do anything. Only by grace. It's a gift. Through faith, we just believe. And Abraham believed and God credited to him as righteousness because he believed that God's word is true and God's work is sufficient. And at the heart of all of our lives, we have to ask, do I believe when God says something, it's true, and when God does something, it's enough? 
And with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, we are believing that God has done something for us in Jesus Christ, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were enemies, God loved us like children. That when we were rebels, the grace of God was poured out in Christ at the cross to forgive us of all our sins. Many of you in the room, before you even had a clue, right? In fact, all of us, right? Because he did it before we were even born. But God, in eternity past, looked and foresaw the day when you and I would recognize our need for a Savior and send his Son to die on the cross for our sins. And we have a gift in God through Christ Jesus that says every sin we've ever committed or will ever commit is already forgiven in Jesus Christ. Amen? It's amazing. And so when, when, when Peter says you are a chosen people, he's trying to remind them Israel wasn't God's people because they had it together. Israel wasn't God's favorites because they, they were well behaved. I mean, you read the Bible and they are a mess. Right? Every time I'm with a new believer and they read their Bible, they come to me and like, why do you want me to read this? Everybody in this book is jacked up. I go, I know. Because it's not about us, it's about him and his patience and love and mercy for a bunch of messed up people. The only one who's not jacked up on the whole story is Jesus Christ. Right? He's the only one who does it right the whole time. That's why he's our only hope. Amen? And then, then I let them know as I'm taking them through the story, this is a very key point. Whatever God does to us, he also intends to do through us. See, that's what's going on with Abraham. God makes him the father of many nations so that Abraham would love the nations. And, it would, and all of his offspring would as well. That God would love Abraham, though he was not a well-behaved man, so that Abraham would love the nations, even though they don't agree with what they believe. You, you hear that? that? This idea of being a chosen people is that God chose a people based upon no prior merit or performance, solely on grace, poured out his love and affection on them, so that they would be an embodiment of the grace of God to the world, to say, as God loved me like a son when I didn't deserve it, God now wants to love you as sojourners and strangers, as though you belong to the family before you do. That's what Israel was meant to be. They were meant to be a place in which if you stumbled in as a stranger or a sojourner or a widow or an orphan or just somebody who didn't belong, you would find yourself feeling like you belonged even if you didn't believe what Israel believed. You'd feel like you all of a sudden have family. That's why the hospitality laws were so very clearly described in the Old Testament and why an elder in the church has to be one who's hospitable because hospitality is love for the stranger, welcoming of the outsider, space at the table for somebody else that doesn't belong. And, and so why did God make that a requirement? Because that's what he's like. Because he welcomed us into the family when we didn't belong and we didn't deserve it. And so his intent was Israel would be a picture of that to the world. In fact, Israel's called God's son. Because what he wanted is he wanted to be an, a picture of the offspring of God, a, a demonstration of what dad's like. And yet they failed, and so Jesus shows up on the scene, as we know, and he see, even says this clearly, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, he's saying, do you want to know what God's love is like? In fact, if you're not a, yet a Christian in the room, you're going, I wonder what, what is this Christianity thing about? What is God really like? You're, you're probably going to be a little bit disappointed if you're looking at us. But if you look at Jesus, you'll go, oh, okay. Man, God's amazing. God is so merciful and loving and kind and gracious and welcoming to all people. In fact, once he welcomes, the religious leaders didn't want to welcome. 
And he gives us a picture of the love of God the Father because he wants to display what it would look like if God was truly known as a loving Father to the world. Paul says it this way about Jesus to make sure we don't miss it. God shows, I already quoted this, but I'm going to bring you back to it again. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's really good news. That's God's way of saying, you know what? I loved you when you were at your worst. So nothing you do can separate you from my love if your life is in Christ Jesus. That's really good news. And what if we love people like that? Years ago, I, I... Janie and I got to see this tested and really developed in our own hearts. This is back in 2004. We moved into a neighborhood in Tacoma, right near, real close to Hilltop. Some of you are familiar with that space. And uh, when we moved in, it's a 100-plus-year-old craftsman home that we've, we since had restored and beautiful home, but it was a little bit dilapidated when I got there. And the house next to it was really a mess. And I remember moving in and neighbors kind of show up and they put their arm around my shoulder and, hey man, I'm really sorry about that. And they point at the neighbor too, if I'm facing my house, my right. And it was falling apart and the backyard is, you know, blackberry bushes 20 feet high. Uh, there were, it was like a jungle. There were creatures living there. I mean, this is urban Tacoma, but I think they found a place to live in the center of urban Tacoma, found a little forest in the backyard of this home. And this home belonged to a, a widow lady named Nikki. Nikki, uh, when we arrived, had just lost her second husband. They, he had died 15 years prior from what we learned over time. Her first husband was very abusive. She ran from that marriage, found uh, a man named Bud, whom she called her angel. She felt like God, he was sent from God. She wasn't a Christian, but she uh, still had a sense of God in the world. And, and she just loved the man, and then he died of cancer. And from that point on, she never got rid of anything. She became a hoarder and a recluse. Some of you guys seen the, the show Hoarders? Just imagine the worst case scenario, 15 years of not throwing anything away. And I don't mean just nice stuff, I mean garbage. So, just a mess. And, and we moved in and we're like, okay, Lord, we believe that wherever you put us is on purpose. And I want to say that to all of you. You live where you live because God has a plan. He's already gone ahead of you. Israel was always being moved into a space that God already went to and was preparing for them or doing a good work. Or preparing them for the good work he was about to do. And so where you live, learn, work, play, all of that, God is there. He's at work doing something, preparing something. So we believe that. And so we began to pray for Nikki and started to reach out to her. And for a year worth of reaching out amounted to zero. She just kept rejecting us. In fact, one of the, one of the memories that will be forever etched in my mind, though I didn't see it, but my wife described it for me. She's sitting, my wife is sitting on the front porch, and we look out, and in Tacoma, we put our garbage can and recycle bins right on a curb there in front of you. And so she's sitting there, and Nikki's in her red van, in the minivan next to, uh, in front of her property, and she gets in the van, and she starts revving the engine. She looks over at my wife sitting in the porch, makes sure she's seeing her. And as she makes sure she's seeing her, she runs over our garbage cans with her van. Okay? I'm not kidding. I'm not making this stuff up. Okay? Like, this is real. So my wife's like, she goes out there, and this is not the first time that she's either pushed him away or pushed him down. So my wife goes out and cleans up the garbage once again, walks back to the house, says, that's it. I wash my hands of this woman, God. I'm done with her. I come home to that. Okay? My wife is very angry, and I, I, I say, hey, sweetie, how's your day? Oh, great. And then she tells me the story, and I go, okay, we're never done with anybody because God was never done with us. 
Okay? And so then we took time to pray. And as we prayed, God brought these thoughts to our mind. One, be patient with her. And her salvation is not on you. It's on me. Just love her. In fact, this is the second thing he said. Love her like family. What if she was your mom? What if she was your grandmother? What if she was your sister? And everyone's going like, none of this is helping yet. Okay, let's just imagine you loved your family then, okay? You loved your mom, you loved your grandmother, you know, whatever. And, and what, if, what would you do if your neighbor was your child or your grandchild? How would you treat them? But unfortunately, many of us, many of us go, yeah, but they aren't, so I don't, I'm not responsible for them. Are you a Christian? Because if you're a Christian... Wherever God has placed you, he intentionally did it so that people around you would find out what it's like if they belong to the family of God. That's, that's what's going on. That's the whole chosen people idea here that Peter's getting after. And, and here's, here's the thing that's been getting more and more lately. Our church is really into foster care and foster to adopt, and that's not easy, and we've watched people go through some really hard stuff. But the language I've been using lately is we're supposed to treat people like they've been given to us like foster kids so that they'll want to be adopted. What if we saw ourselves that way in the world? What if we love people like that? I remember the day when it felt like God broke through. And I, I want to tell you, the story of Nikki that I'm sharing with you took six years, just to be clear. It didn't happen in a couple months. Six years. But a soul is worth six years. Okay? And so one day she comes over to the house, and I'm not there. And this is the first time she came over our house. Sits on the porch with my wife, she's crying. So I need someone to take me to the hospital. Turns out she's having some problems with her heart. Jane's like, why didn't you call an ambulance? And she said, well, I don't want anybody to know that was a need. So by the way, there's a lot of people in your community that are desperately in need but don't want anybody to know it. And you'll never know it unless you take enough time to be with them long enough for them to trust you to let, them, let you into their world. Because it's risky when you let people into your need. Because need is vulnerability, and vulnerability is the possibility of getting hurt again. Okay? So she came over, and Jane's like, well, let's get you to the hospital. And she said, I want to let you know the reason why. I, and she said, she's hurting. Her heart's hurting. She said, I came here because you never gave up on me. And so Janie rushes her to the hospital. She's, it, she's get, they get her stabilized. She stays a week in her hospital bed. Our mission of community, which for us is like our small groups, but all, we expect all of our small groups to not just be about loving each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, but to love those who don't know Jesus collectively together. Because Jesus said, this is how they're going to know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. But if they never get to be in our community, they're never going to see love for one another, nor are they going to experience it. And so we wonder, why are people not coming to faith in Jesus? I would ask, are they getting to experience the love of God in your community in a way that's demonstrably different than the world? And so our mission of community spent the week in the hospital with her, and they just took turns watching terrible soap operas with her. It was, they had to be sanctified later for all that. <laughs> We brought her flowers. They all found out because Nikki loved talking once she trusted you that her van was broken. Our group got together like we always did at least once a week to have a meal. Said, hey, it seems like we should take care of her van. We all agreed to get it fixed so we collected our money and we paid for her van to be fixed. Then we, we just sat down with Nikki and said, Nikki, we don't want you to be alone. So all of us are opening up our homes. If there's ever a night you need to just sit with someone over a dinner, our table's open. Started to join Janie and I first because I think she was a little afraid to start trusting other people she didn't really know that well. But eventually, she became the babysitter. She became like grandma to all of our kids. It was amazing. 
She was in her 70s at the time. And, and I remember, I'll never forget, we said every single holiday you should not be alone. So we're your family. In fact, we even had to prepare my in-laws and said, hey, we're bringing Nikki with us to Thanksgiving and Christmas. I hope, you, hope that's okay. And Janie, my wife and I had already talked about it. If they said no, then we'd let them know we're not coming. Because that's like not bringing one of our kids. Because we wanted to love her like family. And so she just became a part of our family. I remember one Christmas, one of my favorite memories, we were doing our new typical cheese fondue Christmas Eve celebration and making lefsa. My wife's Norwegian. Ooh, I like lefsa. And, uh, and, and we're listening to Christmas music, and, and Nikki's there just sitting there enjoying it. And at one point she goes, you know, one of my favorite songs is Baby, It's Cold Outside. And immediately I'm like, that's not a good song, you know. I mean, I didn't say that, but I thought that, you know. And so we put it on, and... And, you know, God can redeem even broken stuff. And so um, we're playing it, and she goes, oh, man, I remember the times when Bud and I used to dance to that. And my wife looks at me, and she's like. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, right. I mean, I didn't say that, but I thought that. By the way, a lot of things that I'm saying I keep to myself, thankfully, but not always. That one I kept to myself, and I knew the Spirit was nudging me, love her like family. So I got up and said, Nikki, would you like to dance? And here we were in our kitchen. I'll never forget it. Baby, it's cold outside. <laughs> Baby. You know, and it's like, hey, he starts wanting to drink more. And I'm like, hey, that part I can't hear. But, you know, and I just, but I, in the middle of this little dance with Nikki, I, I just felt the father saying, that's what I would have done. That's what I would have done. And I could imagine Jesus being in the room. And you, you know the stories the, the woman who was clearly a, an adulteress is washing his feet with oil and pouring out her love at the affection on his feet. And all the religious leaders are like, do they not, does he not know who this woman is? And she's like, you guys have no clue about forgiveness. But whoever's been forgiven much loves much. And I, in that moment, I was just going, Father, I think this is, this is what you would do to a widow who just needs to be reminded that she's dearly loved. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but were you, have you ever had the moment where you feel like God's love is just pouring over you? I mean, it's so rich. And I, I meet Christians all the time, and they're like, man, I just, I want that day, like, that day when I first had sight, when I could finally see I needed a Savior, and I saw my sin for how wretched it was and how amazing God's grace for me and Jesus was. I was just overwhelmed with his love. Remember that day? You should always go back and remember that if you've forgotten and they go, why don't I experience it anymore? And here's what I've learned with the love of God. God pours out his love in your heart by his spirit, and he generally gives it to you so you can give it to others. But when you live a life primarily about you, and you wonder why you aren't experiencing the love of God being poured out into your heart, it's because he knows you don't need it. Because the reality is you don't want to give it. And I'm not saying he doesn't love you any less. I'm just saying most of you have learned how to just live as though the first time you met him was enough. And I'm telling you, God will call you into the kinds of relationships and situations where you can't do it without the divine love of God being poured out into your life. And for many of us, it's like, no, I want to live all about me and for me. And I'm just going to tell you, Jesus said he who seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I think that's directly connected to this idea that as I go out into the world and say, God, I want you to give me what I don't have so that I can give away to others what they haven't experienced. That's when I experience the love of God being poured out into my life. And in that moment with Nikki, it was like, yes, I know you love me already, Father, but there's something you're doing to enable me to love her in a way I never could have if I didn't step out in faith. And some of you are, are missing out because you don't need it. 
I, have, I used to hear people say all the time, God will never call you to do anything you can't do. Have you read the Bible? <laughs> like, that's crazy. God always calls you to do something you can't do without him. And then included is this love for people. In fact, I would say my love for God has grown in as much as also I've needed it to grow for others. It's connected. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those aren't separate. They're together. And I would say it this way. You can always know how much you know the love of God and need the love of God by how you interact with other people. Those two are directly connected. Yes, we are chosen people. We are a holy nation. See, Israel is meant to display to the world what life under God's rule and reign looked like. Whenever you read the word kingdom in the Bible, understand it's not like what we know of the world. It's the reality of God's rule and reign being experienced at, an, at a personal level, working itself out in a communal level. I want to say that again. The kingdom of God is the, the reality of God's rule and reign being experienced on a personal level, expressed on a communal level. That's how it works. So that's why Jesus can say, the kingdom of God is at hand. What is he saying? It's happening wherever I go. And you saw it because you saw people healed and the, the, the blind given sight and people loved. And, and he could say, this is what the kingdom of God is like. You're getting to taste it. And, and Israel was meant to be that way. They were meant to be a picture of God ruling and reigning. And of course, you, they looked over the fence at all the other nations and said, we want a king like everybody else. That was one of the biggest decisions, one of the biggest failures of Israel's history. They wanted Saul over God. <laughs> Some of us these days need to realize that our real ruler is not our president or president-to-be, but Jesus Christ, amen? As far as the church is concerned, he's our true ruler. So I'm glad I got a good king on the throne because I think he's doing mighty fine at ruling the world. We're just not doing a very good job submitting to him as he does it. So Israel was meant to be a people where the kingdom of God would be expressed so that if you stumbled into it, not only would you experience the family, but you'd see the kingdom. You would see what lives look like when they're being restored, what people look like when they're being connected, what, what brokenness looks like when it's being healed. In fact, I like to say this to our church regularly. We as the church are a trailer to the kingdom. And what I mean by that is like think of a movie trailer. Okay, how many of you guys go early to see the movie trailers? You guys are boring. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you're, or you're lying. I don't know. Maybe you thought I was going to call you out. My kids always don't, they don't want to miss the trailers. Maybe you're going like, I don't go to them anymore because they're always better than the movie, right? And then the, I feel misled because they're lying to us. And that may be true. But, but the point of a trailer is that you watch it so that you'll want to go see the movie. Theologians say the church presently is the signpost of the kingdom, meaning that we're meant to be a trailer of the future reality when Christ is ruling and reigning over all things. And it is really good. That people should be with us and go, if it's anything like what you are giving me, I got to have more of that. Like this is an appetizer to the future. And the appetizer makes me want more. I don't want to miss that feast in that coming day. Amen? Amen? Let me ask, do you think the world is getting that foretaste? I don't think so. Maybe in small pockets. I dream of a day when the greater Puget Sound, Seattle region is saying, we need more of the church because the church is bringing something that nobody else brings in this place. We can see it everywhere we go. People who say they belong to Jesus are loving the broken, caring for the weak, including those who are often excluded. Like the church is not like the world. We're the kingdom of God expressed as a foretaste of the future hope 
We are ambassadors of our king. Let me give you an exercise. Take your neighborhood or your workplace or your school or your kids' sports and ask yourself, where doesn't it look like the kingdom? Some of you are going like, okay, you just said my kids' sports. Like, that's the problem. Me alone on the sidelines doesn't look like the kingdom of God. <laughs> right? What, what if we said, what would the kingdom look like? Not just sound like, look like if it showed up in those spaces. What presently doesn't look like what it will look like? A good way to do this is read the end of the story and find out what it's all going to look like and then ask, where doesn't it look like that? And let's give the world a foretaste of what that will look like. A lot of people are eating alone in this region. Singleness is on the all-time high. And that, that, I'm not saying, tearing that down. I'm just saying some of it's because they feel alone. Are we welcoming them into the family of God at our tables? Because the kingdom of God, everyone's welcomed in. Has a place to, to sit and eat and enjoy the feast. For us with Nikki, we looked at her backyard and said, man, it doesn't look like the kingdom in her backyard. In fact, we knew the inside of her house didn't look like the kingdom of God either, but she wouldn't let us in. So we, Lisa, we let us work in the backyard, and a bunch of us guys loved the idea of getting a backhoe, so we rented a big backhoe in Tacoma. It's kind of cool, you know. Went to her backyard and just dug up that. She gave us permission, first of all, just that's important to know, to go back. And, and we said, well, the, what does the kingdom of God look like in a place like that? It looks like a garden. So we asked if she'd let us build her a garden, a raised bed garden. She said, yeah, would you put some benches so I could sit and watch? And, and then she saw moms coming around after we did it, and they had their kids. She said, could you put some swing sets in? So we had swing sets and a, a little bench and, and all these raised beds. And when we dug the place out, we found two cars buried under those blackberry bushes, believe it or not. One of them was the car that she dated her husband in, and she didn't want to lose that one. And the second was a car that they bought together. And so we asked if we could move them and get rid of them. She said no. So we paid for gravel to be put down to put two cars that don't work on. Okay? Sometimes you do crazy things in the kingdom. In fact, I remember people going like, what are you thinking? Don't you know she's lost her mind? And we said, well, that's not true, first of all. She's hurt and broken and learned how to kind of survive. But second, we're not doing this primarily to do what's most efficient we're trying to show the kingdom of God. Unfortunately, sometimes the kingdom of God isn't efficient. It feels like sometimes there's waste in it. Even though God has efficiency, we can't see, right? And so we just loved on her in the way that made sense to her. And, and I, I knew it blew her away and it blew our neighbors away. And I'm telling you, the number of times people would walk up and go, why are you doing this? And every single time we had an opportunity to share the hope that is in us. In fact, I had to train our group, don't you dare take credit for this. Because it's so easy to be just like the world and go, well, we're just good people and we want to be generous. It makes us feel good about ourselves. And that's all true. But that is not the ultimate truth. Which leads to the third one. We're a royal priesthood. Not only do we display the kingdom as servants of the king because we're a holy nation, but we are a royal priesthood. What that means is you and I have been sent as mediators on behalf of the mediator. Jesus is the high priest. We are under Christ and in Christ priest to all the world. That means you and I are being sent out. Imagine going out of this building with a little black shirt and a white collar. Right? Some of you grew up Catholic or Lutheran or whatever. You're going, okay, that didn't help me, Jeff. I'm sorry. But just imagine Jesus is at those doors, and he is by his spirit. And when you go out, he's going, please represent me well in what you do, and then make sure you tell them there is a way to be made right with God the Father. I'm sending you. And Jesus says it this way, John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Let me ask this question. How many missionaries in the room? You should have learned from my first question. 
If you're a Christian, raise your hand. Keep it up. This is practice. How many missionaries are in the room? Don't take your hand down. Okay? Amen. You can put it down now. All of you, if you are in Christ, have been given the Spirit of God to be a witness to Jesus in word and deed. That's who you are. Your first calling is to be a child of God sent as an ambassador of Christ to proclaim the good news that they can be made right with God as a mediator, a priest. That is who you're called to be. Before you're an employee, before you're a husband or wife, before you are a son or a daughter, your first calling is, I am a child of God sent on behalf of the king to be an ambassador filled with the spirit to make sure all the world knows there's a way back to God. Amen? We begin to see change in, in Nikki's life. I remember one night, she was just desperate for a man to love her, and she came over our house just brokenhearted. And uh, I didn't share this in the first. I'm going to do this if that's okay. Okay. Um, she's weeping. This guy convinced her to do a reverse mortgage on her house. He was a banker, and then he took, was taking the money himself. He was just taking advantage of her and in many other ways, too, unfortunately. It's just devastated. And I, I remember Janie and I sitting with her as she's crying, and, and we, I, I had these two glasses, one that was full and one that was empty, and I grabbed the empty glass and I said, Nikki, I want to let you know that you, you've been desperately looking in the wrong places to be satisfied, and this last man is like this empty glass. I said, you worship him, unfortunately, and she's like, no, I don't. That's gross. I said, no, worship is whenever your life rises and falls on a particular person or thing. Whenever the emotional world of your life is wound up in something so strongly that it has controlling power over your life, that becomes your God. I said, you've been worshiping this guy. She's like, that's disgusting. I go, I know, because he doesn't deserve it, does he? She said, no. And I raised another glass. I said, there's another guy that I want to tell you about. And it's the full glass. I didn't say that to her, but I just visually. I said, he is amazing. He is glorious so good looking. He, he is loving and kind and will never leave you or forsake you, is always devoted to you, becoming the very best woman he always ho- hoped you would be. He lays down his life for you. In fact, he did. She's like, who is he? And I said, his name is Jesus. And she went, oh. Ah. And I said, no, no. Jesus goes, Jeff, I want a guy with flesh. And I said, he put on flesh for you. And then I described the incarnation and then what he did at the cross for her sins. And, and then she said, but I want him here right now. And I said, he is here right now through us. She goes, Jeff, I want a man like you. And I stopped. I was a little uncomfortable. I have a ring on. I'm married. My wife's sitting next to me, all that stuff. But I also knew what she was saying. I said, no, you don't want a man like me because before Jesus, I was just like the guy who just took advantage of you. Jesus came and he changed my life. And if you've seen anything good in me, it's because of what he's done to change my heart. She says, I love how you love your wife. I go, that's because of Jesus loving me. I love how you care for your kids. That's because of Jesus caring for me. I said, all of that is just the overflow of my life with Christ. So if you see anything good in me that looks like Jesus, it's because it was Jesus. You don't want me. You want Jesus. And I said, if you get Jesus, then you don't need a man to be everything for you anymore because you already got the best man. And then you can be with a man who's broken and needy because you have Jesus to give to him as well. And she just started weeping and didn't know if it could be true. That night she went home. She surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She told me she spent the whole night praying, confessing her sins. And here's the kicker. She said, not only did I confess my sins to God, but I confessed, I, I confessed that I needed help forgiving others. And then God gave me the ability to pray for all the people who've used me and abused me and hurt me. And for hours I just prayed that God would forgive them. 
Whatever God does to you, he intends to do through you. That's what happened. Amen. In 2014, August, we got a call that Nikki went into a cardiac arrest while driving her car, and she crashed into a tree. We were gone on vacation. We got back in time to be with her, but in the meantime, everyone in our mission community made sure she had someone by her bedside every hour. And her estranged daughter, who had not talked to her in many, many years, showed up, and she saw what we were doing, and her grandson, Jonathan, showed up, and he saw what we were doing, and every one of them called them to Jesus. They said, we're doing this because of Jesus. They kept giving verbal account to the work that God had done in their life. And in that hospital, yeah, and you can clap, but in that hospital room, Jonathan and his mom did not surrender to Jesus. Then we get to the, the memorial service, and we get up and we're sharing and pictures, and there's Nikki getting baptized in the Puget Sound, and her daughter comes up and grabs the mic. She says, I don't even know who this woman is. That's not, my, that's not my mom because, one, she's scared to death of water. She wouldn't even get in a lake ever. But the Puget Sound, that's stinking cold. So something must have happened to her. And then she said, and I want to tell you, if it weren't for you, my mom would have died without a family. You became her family. And I want to thank you for that. And then she said, can I be a part of the family? And I put my arm around her because we fostered to adopt as Christians. I didn't immediately say, well, are you going to pray the prayer? I said, come on in. Jonathan, after the memorial, grabbed me and said, can I be in the family? Jonathan, her grandson, and I said, sure. He said, well, literally, I mean, I want to move next door to you guys. (laughs) And I said, you don't want to. He goes, no, I want to move in grandma's house. I said, no, you don't. We were just in there. We checked it. It's terrible. And it was garbage about that high. You just had to walk through a thing to get into it. So bad. And uh, he said, well, I want to, well, let's clean it up. And so I talked to our mission community, and we spent three months unloading 15,000 pounds of garbage. And we helped pay for the restoration of a lot of that house. And then Jonathan moved in next door. I'll never forget one night, he and I were in the worst part of the house cleaning up some stuff I don't want to talk about. And I had a mask on and a hazmat suit, and, and I'm picking up the stuff. And I go, this is disgusting. And God goes, so is your sin. And I, and I, I said, and you, you took on my sin. And he goes, I became your sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I just began to weep. Probably the most profound worship experience I've ever had. And Jonathan is right across from me watching me cry and he has no idea. And he says, what's going on? I go, I can't tell you right now. <laughs> and we get into the house and he goes, what, why do you guys do this? There's nothing in it for you. And then what did I do? I gave him the hope that is in me, that I did this because Christ did this for me. And I share with him what was happening in that moment, that I know my sin is that filthy and Jesus became it for me so that I could become the righteousness of God in him and be forever loved and accepted in a family where I don't deserve to be at the table. He said, I want to get baptized. We were going away that next weekend to the Puget Sound for, or to, I'm sorry, to the Pacific Coast to Seabrook and, and, um, he said, can I, can I go on the, retreat, on the retreat with the missional community? I said, yeah. He goes, I want to get baptized while I'm out there. So, then, of course, I asked all the questions. And I said, how, you rejected it every single day in that hospital room. He goes, I know. But I don't know how to explain anymore why people would love people like you do apart from Jesus. I don't have an answer. 
And he goes, so I've got to believe that it must be true. And I mean, he was hardened atheist, anti-Christian, as hard as they get, and yet he couldn't deny the love of God and God's people being displayed in normal, everyday, really filthy ways that cost us a lot, but it cost him everything. Amen? And so we had the privilege of baptizing him in the ocean, and I remember him saying out loud, I said, why do you want to do this? And there's people all over the place. He goes, there is no other answer I've got than Jesus Christ has changed all of you, and now by your love for me, he's changing me. I need a Savior like you have in Jesus. What a joy. I want to ask you, who are the Nickies in your life? Who are the Jonathans in your life? And if you go, I got none, then I would say there's a problem with your life because you've become too closed. And God wants you to open up and be his family to the world, be his servants showing the kingdom, be his missionaries sent as ambassadors who tell the world that they have a Savior in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I'm, I'm blessed to be here and to be with a, a people who I believe you are stirring in them. I, I think there's new works ahead. There's a new harvest ready that you want them to step into. You've already prepared the way for them. I pray that you grant them the faith to believe it, the hope to trust you, and to leave the results up to you, Lord God. But I do pray that every person in this room that knows you personally would, would turn from whatever is distracting them or causing them to not believe or leading them into brokenness and sin, and they would turn back to you and your ways and be obedient to whatever you called them to. And Lord, remind us that your grace is sufficient for us for all the ways we've failed to do this. You've already forgiven us. So we don't have to live with guilt and shame, but we can be free to step out in repentance in a new way. And Lord, if there's anyone in the room who's yet to receive your love for them and your love for them in Christ, I pray that today they would stop resisting you and they would receive you. So I just invite you, if that's you today, maybe you've been resisting for a long time, today is the day of salvation for you. Just say, Jesus, I receive what you've done for me. I believe that I'm a sinner. I believe that you've died on the cross to forgive my sins. I want the love of God poured into my heart. Would you come and fill me and change me and transform me? I'm yours. For many of us, we need to say that every day. So again, we say it, Father, we are yours. Use us for your purposes. Glorify the Son through our lives. Fill us with your spirit for every good work. In Jesus' name, amen.